pleasure to be back. I was here roughly a month ago for my first time, and uh, I don't know if the invitation had already been offered before I preached, and that's why I got to come back, or after, but either way, I'm grateful to uh, have the opportunity. So we're going to be looking in Luke 6, if you open your Bibles, or you can read it out of the bulletin, or out of the Pew Bible, doesn't matter. Luke 6. We find ourselves in the middle of one of Jesus' sermons in Luke. It parallels what we think of as the Sermon on the Mount from Mark with some distinct differences for various reasons. But before we really jump into the text, I want to start by just kind of thinking a little bit about your and my family rules that we have, little family designations Our family does this. This is what makes our family different than other families. Particularly with holidays coming up and Thanksgiving. I really appreciate it in the prayer. Uh, For years, when I was teaching full-time at Biola University, I would assume that students were all going home to some sort of, you know, wonderful family situation for the holidays and would pray to that end. Like right before Thanksgiving and Christmas break, thank you, God, for this opportunity go be with our families. I grew up in a family that did have really good family time, maybe even almost exaggerated utopian, like we needed so badly to tell ourselves that our family time was wonderful that we almost maybe overplayed it. Um, and then I had a student one time, um, I can't remember if, if it was someone who had been, you know, phased out of, of the, 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 um, the system, didn't have a family to go to, or was, or was maybe just had a bad family situation, just came up and very kindly, almost, it wasn't, the student didn't intend it as a rebuke. But it was essentially received as a, as a good rebuke to say, oh, Professor Oaks, not all of us look forward to going home for the holidays. And that was helpful for me. And it was a good reminder. That absolutely, that's true. There's a lot of pain and suffering and sorrow and sadness and alcoholism and divorce and whatever other things that these students would have to face back into um, that were difficult and hard. So as we're thinking about our own family rules, uh, some, are, some are important and sort of difficult, like how do we deal with those things? And a lot of them are just sort of trite and silly. And you know, during Thanksgiving, do we have a kid table and an adult table? What do we do if it, do we do the cranberry sauce or not? Some people think it's disgusting. Some people think it's great. Some people like, what do we do with coconuts on desserts, right? Coconut on dessert is, in my opinion, a really bad idea, but some people really like it. Particularly in Easter, it's always a bunch of coconutty stuff. As a child, you see all this coconutty stuff, and you think it's going to be wonderful, and then it's horrible, and then you want to spit it out, but you'll offend the aunt who brought the cupcakes with the coconut. So there's all these different things we think about in our family rules, and I want us to consider them. And in my family, I think I've got my two sons uh, with me again. So right now we have four teenagers in our family. There's a lot of younger families in this church, which is wonderful. In my family right now, we have a 15, 16, 17, and 18-year-old. It's the one time of the year we have about two months that it lines up exactly that way before the birthdays start flipping back around again. And so we have three in high school and one in college. And so we spend a lot of family time talking about our family rules, particularly whenever our high school age kids are complaining about our family rules in comparison to their friends' family rules. It's always easy to find those families who have much more lax rules about whatever else. And I, I say without really exaggeration that probably the number one conversation that we have in our family is concerning these stupid things. I don't know what parents talked about 20 years ago with their kids. It must have been the easiest time on the face. All parenting up until the advent of the uh, smartphone must have just been super simple, right? There was nothing to talk about with, as parents. You didn't have anything. But everything we're talking about now with our kids is what they can use their phones for. Why do we lock them down? Why does dad have the gall to just grab their phones and look through it anytime he chooses to? How dare he do that? Well, it's in the contract. We literally make our kids sign a contract before we give them a phone. Other families don't make us to a contract. So our kids obviously notice all of our family rules that they think of draconian or impossible. And of course, as the parents, we're noticing all those families in our church and everywhere else whose family rules are much more lax than our family rules. And my point is this to get our mindset towards thinking there are rules that we have as family members. Some are important, some are unimportant. And that's what we're looking at in the text today. It's essentially a family rule that is very short and very simple and very easy to understand. Love your enemies. That's the family rule. 
It's not an easy family rule to, to live by. We're going to see that we have supernatural power in order to do that. But that's what's going on here. So I'm going to read our text. We're going to ask for the Spirit to help. What we're doing is, is worthless and vanity if we don't get help from the Spirit. And then we'll just jump into the text and see what God has for us. Let me read. Let me pray and then we'll read. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, may your word be active. May it cut us. May it separate us. Uh, may the Spirit join with the Word to help us to not only understand what you have to say to us through your inspired and errant Word, but also to apply it to our hearts, which is a, a far difficult, far more difficult task so often. So we need your help. We cannot do this alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, starting at verse 27. But I say to you who here love your enemies... Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. See, here we have our family rule, love your enemies. This is a rule that's to mark those of us who profess faith in Jesus. Whether we do it well or not doesn't matter. The point is it is what we're supposed to be like. It is aspirational, something to aspire towards. Now, when we say it's aspirational, it doesn't mean it's sort of like, oh, why aspire to do that, but I don't really try, or I can give myself a lot of uh, leniency for failure. No, it's aspirational in the sense of there should be occurrences regularly, maybe even daily, that we can examine ourselves and say and ask, how well am I practicing this family rule? Does my DNA look like a person who's in God's family? At least in this text, what's the question to determine that? Do I love my enemies? It's a very simple text, actually. Uh, Jesus, not surprisingly, is a very good speaker. And the clarity of this, of this sermon in this particular point is very clear because he essentially gives us one rule, love your enemies. And the rest of the texts are not further rules. At first blush, they look like further rules. We're going to look at them in a second. But it's essentially illustrations upon that one rule so it actually makes it uh it's 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 the kind of teaching i really appreciate i really appreciate simplicity hey here's the point now let me let me flavor it let me salt it let me illuminate it let me give examples of it that's what jesus is doing for us here it's actually one of the things that will help us to not get bogged down in this text in some ways that we as the church have for so many years at various times. If we mistake the illustrations as further commands rather than illustrations of the one command. So I'm just sort of giving you a framework to help us so that when we get to that point, we'll know what we're doing with it. So the first point, why is it that I'm making such, why am I making it so important for us to realize this is a family rule? Well, that's because it's textual. Look at the opening text the opening verse of this sermon in verse 20. This is one of the things that makes uh, Luke's rendition and the Sermon on the Plain uh, a little clearer than even uh, Matthew's and the Sermon on the Mount is Luke records this little editorial comment of verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Sermon starts. We know from Jesus' teaching that this was a point in his ministry where multitudes were gathering around and he would, he would try to have to skip around and people gather. So there were more people present 
than merely his disciples, but it's as if Luke wants us to understand at this point, in fact, if you look at the preceding paragraph, Jesus ministers to the great multitude. But at this material, this sermon is explicitly stated for, hey, gather around disciples. I know there's others here. There's others here who want more bread. There's others here who want whatever else, who need and want healing. And they're welcome, but this is for family business. This is for you, disciples. And he starts in the sermon. Now, the very second chunk of the sermon, when he pronounces the woes, at that point, he's, he's sort of now expanding a little bit. Woe to the ones who are not the disciples. Which is why in our text, he brings it very clearly right back to make sure we know that we're talking about family rules here. Because in verse 27, he says, but I say to you who hear. And once again, focusing the attention. This is for disciples in the current context, which means for us, believers, family members of the Father. It's a very helpful reminder because particularly when you start thinking about loving your enemies and whether this text justifies full pacifism for a nation and whatever else, is, it's helpful for us to realize the context of the passage is primarily Jesus speaking to his family. Whenever I first started wrestling with this passage a little bit and the times of, that we're living in were obviously present in my brain, I wanted to spend so much time thinking about the who. Who are my enemies? But as I'm thinking about it, I need to love my enemies, I, need, I really wanted to spend a lot of time sort of talking, and maybe some of that was, was pride, and maybe some of that was, I feel like I have such a better sense of determining and walking a middle ground of who is and who is not my enemies or whatever else. There's all kinds of flags that go up now looking back on me a month ago as I was thinking through this text. But the interesting part about this text, Jesus is completely uninterested in defining the who. Let me say that again because it's super interesting. Jesus is completely uninterested in defining who our enemies are. He just states, love your enemies. There might be a lot of reasons for that. One of them are if he's talking to his disciples, the disciples are probably already somewhat aware of who their enemies are. They're certainly going to become more aware as Jesus gets taken from them and killed. And then in their own life later, when they get themselves, almost all of them killed, they will be very aware of who their enemies are. That might be part of it. But I think another part of it is that the who is unimportant because it doesn't matter who your enemy is, we're to love them. Like the, 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 the rule is the important part. Love your enemies. So we, we live in a culture now that there is no shortage of people telling us who we should view as our enemies. There is no shortage. You can look at almost any news source and at least one of their agendas, it seems to me, is to inform you of who you should view as your enemy. For whatever reason. They don't vote like you. They're your enemy. They don't look like you. They're your enemy. They don't agree on whether you should wear a mask or not. They're your enemy. They don't, uh, just, it's, it's almost ridiculous and if you think about it. And I think the point of the passage here is not so much who is my enemy as whoever it is that I perceive to be my enemy or whoever it is I'm being told is my enemy, I need to love them. There's also a, there, there's a fear here, isn't there? There's, the who could almost, we could almost overreact. This maybe is my tendency, my temptation. Uh, I'm a philosopher by trade, by training. And, and so sometimes I just sort of like, I kind of feel like, oh, I just I get removed from all these extremists, or whatever else. And someone like me might even start to go into an person like, well, we don't really have any enemies. I mean, compared to, you know, Jesus' disciples who are being killed, they had enemies. We don't have enemies. And that would be, that would be its own error, wouldn't it? There are certainly people who are dislike us, don't appreciate us primarily for what we say and believe about the Bible. So our category, oh, here's our organization. Uh, who, we just did it. There is no who in this passage. Whoever it is you perceive to be your enemies. What? That's what we're going to spend the majority of our time on because textually that's what Jesus spends the most of the time on. What does it mean to love our enemies? Then we're going to look at how. How is it possible to love our enemies, and in the midst of the how, we're also going to be looking at why, why it's important to love our enemies. So the who's already done. The what, as I already said, is actually really clear. It's a one-command 
sermon. I say to you, love your enemies. And then after that, it starts filling it in. Filling it in with different, uh, putting some meat on the bone, as it were. In the New Testament, John, as a gospel writer, has a really nice, strong emphasis on loving one another. Right? You can think of, of, of John saying, hey, love one another. By this, all people know whether you, whether you uh, are followers of me. And First and Second John, you have this really strong love one another. Luke, it seems like, is a little bit unusual, or his emphasis is a little bit un- unusual in this loving your enemy. How do we, what do we do with that? Well, we do with that is we know, well, Jesus taught both things and by the Spirit as these men were, were being called to write, one was going to carry this torch and one was going to carry this torch. But for example, in Luke, do we have uniquely the only gospel narrative that says that Jesus on the cross uttered the words, Lord, forgive them, is Luke. We find that in Luke. So what do we have? We have an application of love your enemies from the very mouth of Jesus. Also, in Acts, also written by Luke, we have the first martyr, Stephen, saying very much the exact same prayer. Loving his enemies, praying for those who persecute him, literally, as he's dying. Now, this is particularly helpful historically, and I, we want to preach the text, but we, and we don't want to carry too much in, in my opinion, uh, from outside, or we can, we can almost go contextual, cultural to, a, to an excess, but at times it's really helpful, and here's one time it's very helpful. Because the Jewish religious leaders of the day were very comfortable preaching and teaching, love your friends, hate your enemies. So the, the, the context, the, the audience who was coming, if they had had much religious teaching at all from the current teachers of the day, this would have been a shocking claim from Jesus. Because they had heard their religious teachers, in fact, in Matthew, it's exactly what Jesus says, you have heard it said you shall love your friends and hate your enemies, but I am telling you, you should love your enemies. It's shocking. It's disorienting. It's co- it creates cognitive dissonance. Wait, wait, wait. This is one of those times where it's like, wow, his teaching isn't like the rabbis. Remember you hear the crowd say that? His teaching isn't like the rabbis. He's teaching upon his own authority in a different way. So when we get to this point of love your enemies, it's a good reminder that Jesus is saying something that's ringing very strange into their ears. We as Christians have at least heard the passage. We at least know it's a teaching of Jesus. And maybe we're like, I don't know how to do that, or I don't know if I like it, or not exactly how does it apply, or whatever else. But it doesn't seem like that's crazy. What he's saying is unusual, whereas this initial audience, maybe even the disciples themselves, might have said, wait, love your enemies? How does this fit? Why does this work? And as soon as the command is made, that's the rest of this first, the, the, the first paragraph in the ESV and in our bulletin, is the illustrations. Do good those to good those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If one strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. From who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do unto them. So here's the illustrations. And we can walk through them very quickly. The first is bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It's really hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. Uh, my wife and I, in our fifth year, fourth or fifth year of marriage, um, we spent one year overseas in the United Kingdom. Um, it, was, it, was, uh, it turned out to where our oldest daughter was born there. That wasn't the original part of the plan. Um, but... We spent one year overseas, and it just so happened, those of you who are, I'm 46 years old, those of you who are about my age will remember this time really well, and even if you're a little bit younger, when the United States was mounting a ground attack in Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein. It was a really interesting time to be an American living outside of America, because America was viewed as the aggressors, were the aggressors, Americans Felt like we had reason to be the aggressors, but I'm living in a context in which many people think, well, that guy's representative of this sort of foreign force going into a different country and taking them out. And I went to this, we went to this great small little church. And I'll never forget the way that the pastor that Sunday in his pastoral prayer 
prayed about the situation. He prayed by name for Osama bin Laden, that he would believe in Jesus, that he would confess his sins and repent. He prayed by the name of Saddam, that he would believe in Jesus. And then he prayed that peace would come. He prayed for the American president at the time. And he prayed that peace would come. Now, I grew up in Oklahoma. It's a red state. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church where it's God and country, Lord be with our boys, that kind of a mentality of the way that we, we think about these things. And so my orientation of sitting in this church, in this United Kingdom, this little Baptist church, and just sort of realizing that's what it looks like to pray for our enemies. I hadn't seen that. I hadn't seen that model for me, at least not in that way, and it made an indelible mark. The verse is probably most famous out of this in verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. In the context, probably the, the, the initial audience would not have really understood being struck on the cheek as a, as a violent act, nearly as much as an offensive act. They think that maybe the context, the origin of it goes back to uh, maybe even when someone would come into one of the tabernacles or into a, a place where there was religious teaching and if someone spoke something that was sort of like not quite the right thing, if they spoke in a way to the rabbi that wasn't quite right, the rabbi might just slap them on the cheek. It's a very different sort of religious instruction than we do now. But it was not so much a violent, someone walks up on the street and punches you out of violence. It's more of an offense. It's a more of a putting you in your place. So the original audience wouldn't have heard this as if someone's violent to me, let them be more violent to me. The point that they would have heard is if someone offends me, I shouldn't be so worried about being offended that I stand up for my own rights. I should allow them to offend me and I should allow for them to offend me again. And it's okay. That's, that's sort of what's being said here. It's a very similar claim um, for the one who takes away your cloak don't withhold your tunic. Right? There's, there's some legal stuff going on here uh, that is in the background, but the, essentially it's, it's not merely a someone violently or a thief aggressively taking something away from you. It might be, have been um, in an exchange in which someone says, you owe me this, you should give this to me. You are obligated to give this to me. And they might be taking advantage of you to say, um, give this to me. So Jesus here is saying, don't worry about people taking advantage of you. Don't worry about people offending you. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you. From the one who takes your goods away, do not demand them back. Once again, we have something with stealing. And then 31, we have essentially a summary of our teaching. It's, it comes in a second command, and it comes in the same form as uh, the great commandment. Do as the golden rule. And as you wish the others would do to you, so do to them. So let's pause really quickly. And let's say, okay, Jesus, here's the teaching. It's pretty easy. Love your enemies. Here's the applications. Don't be overly worried about making sure people don't offend you. Don't be overly worried about someone might be taking advantage of you. Right? Allow people to offend you. Allow people to take advantage of you. And here's my question. How are we doing at that? And when we ask that question, it could be, how are we doing at that individually? Am I someone who's overly prone to be constantly on guard for when are my rights being violated? I've got to stand up for my rights. That's who Jesus is talking about. Or maybe as our family, overly concerned about they're looking down on us. They don't think properly about us. They don't know what they've got coming, right? That's who Jesus is talking about. Or maybe as a church, or maybe as a broader Christian subgroup within our national groupings here in the United States, right? Maybe as the evangelical voting block or whatever we might want to call it within the United States. How are we doing with this simple teaching of Jesus? And I would suggest we're not doing real well. There's a Little-known polit politician right now. This is not one of the big dogs that people have heard of. Some of you, if you really follow, will know this person. It's, it's, um, it's, it's someone who's coming into the political realm right now and someone who's running for office in an upcoming election. Um, and in an interview, this person professes faith in Jesus. This person is sort of going for the evangelical voting block, you could say. And at the end of an interview... 
this person said the following, I think our people, meaning his supporters, hate the right people, meaning the correct people. So this is a, this is a Christian saying, my followers hate the appropriate people. And, and good for somebody, a, a reporter, says, I kind of love free press, some reporter, it's, did he really, you know, did he misspeak? Did he, so they, they reached out to his campaign, and his campaign doubled down, literally, on the comment. And the response that the campaign gave was, candidate X, I won't give his name, strongly believes that the blank, right, he gives a, a list of sort of groups and organizations, not individuals, but believes that these groups and these organizations deserve nothing but our scorn and hatred. That's a political campaign statement. I would hope that this person has some lovers of Jesus, some family members of Jesus within his inner circle, or at least in, that, are, that are in the state which would be voting for him, that would call out to him and say, please, let's model something closer to what Jesus would model rather than something that is exasperating hate and anxiety and worries for whatever reason, most likely here, merely political benefit. This reminds me of this, this sort of language. This, this is frightening language to me. So my sons, I think I said this last time, my sons joined our family 10 years ago, almost, no, we're coming up on 10 years, from Ethiopia. Ethiopia right now is in the midst of a civil war. It's, it's just starting to get some publication, but it's been going on for about a year now, and it's very complicated, and there's a, like so much in Africa, and really not all that different from us, but there's so much old bad blood, and this tribe did this to this tribe, and now this tribe has power, and they're going to make that tribe pay and whatever else. And there was a super interesting Christianity Today article about three months ago where someone was interviewing Christians. So Ethiopia is an interesting mix of Muslim, Orthodox, Ethiopian belief, and a few, a smaller group of evangelicals, mostly Pentecostals, they call them Pentes. So this Christianity Today, being an evangelical organization, was, was talking to the evangelicals, the Pentes, about the conflict. And the vast majority of the evangelicals were saying, those people that are causing the trouble should die. That's what they get coming. They persecuted us for so long that they are... And there's dangerous language being used. They are a cancer that should be removed entirely. That's the kind of language people use when there's genocide on the mind. That's the kind of language the government is using about this particular group of people right now too. And my point is only, once again, how are we doing at this? And how can we, as as Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving believers, allow people that name the name Jesus to say such things that are completely in diametrical opposition to the teachings of Jesus. I, I got to move on, but my mind, is, my mind is swirling on this exact issue because it's, it's frightening to me. And it's, it's another thing in which if being an evangelical is primarily an indication of how we vote, it can give us excuses for ignoring the teachings of Jesus. Man, one of my favorite things about our church, and I think your church too, I don't know your church well, is there's a few people in our church that I know didn't vote like the majority of the other people in our church. And they're some of my dear friends. And I love thinking this is the thing about church, right? They do profess the love of Jesus. They do believe in the gospel. But maybe their voting record would set some people to think that they must be the enemies of the others. But no, we hold up the similar idea of the gospel. Now, maybe I disagree with them on some of those things. But at the same time, can't I love my brother or sister rather than uh, judge them, which is interesting. That's the very next thing coming in the, in the passage is don't judge others. <laughs> so, so shouldn't I be able to love? Okay, moving on. It's one simple rule. I want to, at this point, before we get into... Well, actually, yeah, no, I want to, let's keep moving, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to backtrack. So in verse 32, so we have one rule, illustrations. Then we have, in 32, a, a basic an application of that one rule. And the application is essentially this. 
because this is a family rule, because you are believers and followers of Jesus, then the expectation of the way you should love your enemy should go far beyond those who don't love Jesus, right? The sinner. You should love people in a remarkably different way than the sinner. And that's the whole point, right? If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect, if you, if you lend money and you expect to get it back, big deal. What about lending money to those who you, you know not going to pay you back? That's Jesus' point here. So once again, one rule applied now, applied in the saying, if we as followers of Jesus really are going to love our enemy, it's going to cause us to have a supernatural response to the way that we interact with people that's going to set us completely apart from those who don't love and follow Jesus. Now let's just hit pause because I want to return to the text uh, in a second. We're going to really look at, there's, there's some really nice gospel implications here. But I want to stop here after we've done some limited exegesis and, and give three what I think are just helpful keys. There's not really any magic here, but there's three things interpretively that I think are very helpful to keep in mind on a passage like this that's been talked about so much and has so much history both in our own minds and also in the applications that we've heard it read. The first helpful key. The first helpful key is found in verse 22. Verse 22, this entire section of the sermon is essentially a, 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 an elongation of what Jesus has already presented in the Beatitudes in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name, name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And that last part's the important part. So the first key to this passage is, are these people your enemies on account of the Son of Man? Right? Bless those who hate you if they hate you on account of your love for Jesus. That's a different standard than merely your voting record or what kind of vehicle you drive or whether you wear a mask or not. Now, some of those things, and I hope for those of us who follow Jesus, all of those things in some way should be attached, but let's be very careful to not name every single time someone speaks hatred to us as if it's because of the love of Jesus that we have, because it may or may not be. And it takes wisdom. Good thing God gives it to us, right? It takes wisdom to sometimes pull apart. Wait, wait, wait. Are these people hating me because of the love of Jesus or for some other reason? Maybe I'm being really rude or, or maybe I'm being really insensitive or maybe I'm speaking truth not in grace, right? So it takes wisdom and self-evaluation to be able to pull apart. What is it that someone's hating me because of the love of Jesus, because of the Son of Man versus something else? Here's an illustration. So I did my graduate degree at the University of Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a Bible Belt state. The University of Oklahoma is, you know, would be viewed by most small town people in the Bible Belt as sort of the most liberal university in the state, which is probably not saying much in Oklahoma, but it is definitely has more of that. In the liberal university of the University of Oklahoma, the philosophy department would be, you know, that'd be who you'd be scared of, right? You'd be scared of the philosophy professors. And I was one of the few people who would teach philosophy classes as a Christian. But because I understood that culture, I grew up in that culture, that Bible Belt culture, it's very different than Southern California culture. Um, Bible Belt cultural Christianity, it's, it's sort of frightening in its own right in many ways. There's a lot of people that would profess the name of Jesus but really have no desire to live for Jesus or to obey him in their daily walks in any way. Um, and so because in that context, I chose to teach my class without saying that I was a Christian. I felt like if I said I was a Christian, 80% of the students would just kind of turn their brains off and just kind of, well, whatever he says, I'm just going to listen. And the whole point of a philosophy class is to sort of try to get people to think a little bit. At least that's the way I interpret it. Here's this point of the story is, I found after teaching, I was a grader for another professor a couple of years, I'm teaching this class myself, I found this, this very interesting phenomenon of some students would write bad papers and sprinkle Bible verses into them. Meaning, the paper, as you read it, this is a C paper. Now, they are, they're obviously 
they're sprinkling some Bible verses in in our introductory philosophy course. And after reading enough of these papers, bad papers, C papers with Bible verses, I started to wonder, I wonder how many of these students feel like they're being oppressed because of their Bible verses in their paper. I wonder how many went home for Thanksgiving and said, oh man, my philosophy professor hates me because I put Bible verses in my paper. That's why I'm getting a C in this class. Now, there were some really good papers that had Bible verses, obviously. There are also some other really bad papers that took an atheistic or agnostic position and really, really good papers and went the other way. But that's an illustration because it's sort of, I wonder how much we might do that in our own lives. How much do we in our own lives, we might, we might interact with someone really poorly and then we might throw a Bible verse out and then we, we, we imagine that they are, they're not accepting us because of our love for Jesus rather than maybe we just weren't very kind and loving and maybe we weren't very professional Maybe we weren't very, uh, we were not representative of just kindness and mercy and grace in other ways. So that's the first key, and I think it's a tricky one, but the first key is the hatred of the enemy for us here is primarily in mind, contextually, those who are hating us on account of Jesus. Here's the second helpful key. This is not intended to be written as a public ethic. This is a private ethic. Meaning, Jesus here is not intending to get his disciples around and say, hey guys, how are we going to set up a just society? What would a government look like if we were going to set up a government? That's not, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't have ideas towards that and there's not parts of the New Testament that would be applied in that direction, but that's not what this text is about. This text is, hey, family, love your enemies. So the philosopher Plato writes the Republic. His goal is to talk about how to build a Republic. That's not Jesus's goal here. So we can help. That's helpful to us. This passage no doubt has some light to bear on uh, questions of taking up arms as a nation. But that's not the context of what Jesus is talking about. I don't know if, if in your church here you have. I'm guessing you do have people that are in some ways involved in and the armed forces or the police and whatever else. And if we don't understand this public-private, we could even look at this and say, wait, 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 uh, your profession is breaking the Bible. When the Bible also says that, no, there's civil magistrates that are to keep justice in this world. So there's a, this private public. So as we read and we seek to apply this passage, seek to apply it in your own heart as you're thinking about your interactions with others. That's the primary intent. And the final third intent, and this one's a little bit tricky, but I think it's super important. It actually helps us with what, what's largely the most frequent misuse of a text like this. The third helpful key is that there is some hyperbolic language being used here. Now, some of you, hopefully some of you are like, well, I'm hoping where he, I wonder where he's going with this. He might, be, he might be straying into some weird waters. But here's all I'm saying is, Jesus is very deliberately overstating the case in a, in a couple of instances to make the point. Let's look at it. See what I mean. Uh, one of the commentators, one of the best parts they put is said, uh, if anyone begs from you, uh, give them your, you know, oh, that's right. Uh, if they take away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Someone said, if we made that a command, then that would actually lead into public nudity, Right? We're not supposed to just walk around giving our clothes to everybody. In our church, our, one of the people that works in our youth ministry, his vehicle was stolen. Um, and for about two weeks, it was missing. And the police finally found it and called him. And it was sitting, um, I, think it was, I think it was the city of industry, actually. It was sitting over here somewhere from over in, in the La Mirada area where it was taken. And it had like a... a, it had like a half-eaten Subway sandwich in it, and it looked like someone had been like living in his car for a couple of weeks. And Jonathan was happy to receive his car back. The point of the hyperbolic language is this is not, I shouldn't, it would not be good for our elders to bring Jonathan in and say, Jonathan, um, we're going to look at the text here in verse 29. If one takes away your goods, do not demand them back. You are not applying the, 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 the teaching of Jesus by wanting your vehicle back. It's hyperbolic language. Now, when I say it's hyperbolic language, that's not to say, oh, okay, then I don't really have to worry about this. No, that's the whole exact point of hyperbolic language. It's so important that Jesus is deliberately overstating the case. 
But the point is that these are not many commands. These are applications of the one command. The command is love your enemies. I was reading a helpful commentary. Um, I can't even remember. It was one of these pastors from 100 years ago in the United Kingdom. And uh, he was talking about the... Uh, when someone gives to you, when someone begs to you, you give to everyone who begs to you. And he says, that doesn't mean that every single person, if I, if I see the same person on the same corner and I know they're using the money that I'm giving them to become more and more intoxicated, I'm not going to continue to give to that person. And what was he doing? He was, just, he was helping us understand. Our heart should be the kind of a heart that when we see someone with a sign, we, we are inclined to give to them. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13 says love believes all things. So we're sort of supposed to be a little bit naive. We're supposed to be a little bit trusting, a little bit like this little point. We're not looking out for our own rights. So we're the kind of people who are prone to believe people and prone to give. But at the same time, we're not going to continue to give when we know someone's using that in ways that are dishonest or unhelpful. I think, I don't know about you, I tend to be just the opposite because I like keeping my money, when I see the sign, I might immediately think that's a liar. It might be. But I don't think that's what this passage is telling me to do with my heart. I think what this passage is... Now, probably would be the best thing to do is not either throw money out the window or not throw money out the window, is pull over the car and have a conversation and try to help the person, right? That'd probably be the best thing to do, which I don't do a good job of that either, as much as I should. So the three helpful keys... Are we being hated on account of Jesus? It's a personal ethic, not a public ethic. And the hyperbolic language. The hyperbolic language is not to allow us to no longer pay attention to Jesus' teaching. It's the exact opposite. It's Jesus is using hyperbolic language to make us realize this is against our nature and we are not going to like it and we need to sort of be pressed a little bit. And the whole point is not give to every single person that begs from you. It is have a heart in which you're willing to not look out for your own wealth, your own growth. Now, there's something interesting going on, and you probably picked up on it when I read it in the second paragraph here, and there's a lot of credit talk going on here. If you love those who love you, then verse 32, what benefit is that to you? If sinners love those who love them, Or even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who love you, what benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you in verse 34? Even sinners lead to sinners. And it sort of feels like, particularly when you get to the summary text, love your enemies, 35, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Taken at face value, that passage could lead us to believe that Jesus is teaching some kind of works righteousness, right? If you love those, you give money to them, you do these things, then what will happen in return for doing all of those things? Well, what we'll do is you're going to get this really great reward. What's your great reward? Being sons of the Most High. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a temptation to interpret it that way. It's actually one of the primary reasons the whole sermon is set up as a family rule. Because why would Jesus be telling the disciples, if they do this, they will be disciples? (laughs) They're already disciples, right? So what is this credit? What is this reward? I really like uh, Daryl Bach's commentary. has been really helpful. It's it's anyone who's read any commentaries on uh, Luke has used this one. It's it's very helpful. Here's what he says that the reward is, and it's really well stated. Um, The reward is God's acknowledgement that he has seen this love and the faithfulness it reflects. It is the Father's pleasure at evidencing kinship with God. I like that. It's God saying, I am pleased with you. I am pleased with seeing you living in such a way that proves that you're my son or daughter. That that pleases God. Reward is God's favor or blessing for doing what is noteworthy. It is not merit for salvation, but recognition of being a faithful son or daughter. There's a pride that a father has when they see their child acting in the way that they want them to act. I 
I didn't do this in my own church, but I can do it here. I have both my sons are in the room, and I've both praised them both in the last two weeks. I think even the last week. For in different instances, I've received feedback from one of those coach, one of those work, whatever else, of how hardworking they are. Oh, man, I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma. I, if anything, I might have an idol of hard work. If anything, I might hate idle hands to a fault, right? That might be, I might have to confess that sin. But man, whenever I get to hear that my sons, other people are seeing them as hardworking. There's pleasure. There's pleasure that comes to me. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here, that there's pleasure that the Father receives if he sees us loving the unlovable. If he sees us caring for and responding out of mercy and grace whenever we might be tempted to respond out of anger, maybe even justified anger. The final passage, the final verse is, I think, the most helpful part of this whole thing because the the why is this this pleasure pleasing god not to earn our righteousness not to earn being a son but because that's what pleases our father and then the how and when i think of how it's really more of a at this point maybe you're like okay jesus i'm with you i want to love my enemy but i have no idea how i can do it it just seems impossible you don't know the people i work with (laughs) or you don't you don't know uh, our culture and our environment, and you don't understand uh, the way that people view me or my family right now. And I think that's exactly why Jesus ends this text the way that he does in this particular part of this sermon. Because in that verse I was just looking at in 35, whenever it looks like it's working towards works righteousness, your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. I deliberately left off the gospel grounded nature that this this text is going for, for the for, which is always an important word in the Bible, for, verse 35, he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. God is pleased with us when we love people like God loves. Well, how do we know that God loves like this? Well, because God loved us. When did God love us? Well, Romans tells us very clearly God loved us while we were still his enemies. I really like this this joining of words here um, in 35. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. My guess is most of us would recognize ourselves as believers as being ungrateful people. Lord, help me to be more grateful. Help me to be more thankful. Romans 1 tells us that's the heart of all sin, lacking gratitude, not giving God glory and being thankful. That's sin. But most of us, we kind of know that we're supposed to think ourselves evil, but we don't really think of ourselves as evil. But here Jesus is saying, hey, you know you're ungrateful, you're also evil. God showed you mercy, you ungrateful, evil people. Reminds me in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' point, it was a similar point, he says, uh, if you being evil give good gifts to your sons, how much more will the Father? You can kind of imagine me being like, evil? Come on, Jesus, lay off. This isn't, this isn't quite right. But that's exactly right. Ungrateful and evil. And how did God respond to us? Out of the riches of his mercy, he poured it out upon us. And the final illustration command, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Well, how should I act? Well, if if you're a person of mercy, you should act in response to evil and hatred and anger out of mercy because you have a supernatural reservoir to act out of called the gospel. God has loved you supernaturally while you were evil and ungrateful. So therefore, if people are evil to us, for the sake of Christ, we can respond to them out of this immeasurable wealth. I want to end quickly with an illustration of how this has worked itself out actually in history. Um, one of my favorite names in church history is a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp, if you did not know of him, is worth doing a little bit of reading on. One of the very early church fathers, and by early, I mean he's sort of just a, kind of a generation away from the earliest disciples. In fact, some people think that Polycarp might have even life overlapped with some of the disciples who died last, like, the gospel, like a John. So Polycarp, as, as, an, as an old man, is, as, this is the time in which the Romans are hunting the Christians down and feeding them to the beasts. And Polycarp finds out that he is now on the list. They are coming for Polycarp. 
And he was, it seems like he was a man of wealth. And it seems like he was a man of respect in his neighborhood and in his community. And there's a writing called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And like any other extra biblical literature, there's parts of it that we don't know if it's all true or not. But if nothing else, what I love about this writing, this sort of epistle, this non-biblical epistle, is it shows how well early Christians understood this teaching of Jesus. So the first part of the passage, it talks about Polycarp finds out these people are coming after him. So he goes into a house and he runs off and it says, there he stayed with a few friends engaged in nothing else night and day than praying for all men. Pray for your enemies. Early church fathers, writers of this epistle are recognizing, let's apply this teaching of Jesus. But that's nothing compared to what's about to come. But they finally find him. And they come with a cohort. Like they come as if they're going to arrest, you know, like an army. They've got, their, they've got multiples of, of soldiers and they're, 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 they're dressed and ready for battle. And when they finally see the man they've come out for, he's an 84-year-old man. And the soldiers look at each other like, well, why on earth did we come out with such forces for such a, a humble old man? And here's what the text says. I love this. The people, the soldiers said, why was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Immediately then, this is Polycarp, at that very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them as much indeed as they cared for while he asked them for an hour to pray without disturbance. He knows they're coming to take him to kill him. That's exactly what ends up happening. They kill him. What does he do? He says, hey, servants, bring them food. Bring them drink. He's literally gifting them a meal and in return asks that he might go pray a little bit longer. And when he gets done praying, he comes down and he's ready to go. And they drag him off to his death. Whatever this passage is being applied to our current situation, it's doubtful any of us will have this situation occur to us anytime soon not to say there's not other believers around the world that this is the exact kind of thing they're facing currently. But us now, this is unlikely. But it is at least, if nothing else, a historical example of how if we really follow this family rule, we might, over time, by the Spirit's help, be able to love our enemies well. Let me pray to that end. Father, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We need your help. We need your help to even love those of us in this room well, much less those of us outside or even those of us in our immediate families well. Uh, So we need your help to love and to love sacrificially and to love without asking for anything in return, to love the way that God has loved us, to be merciful as our Father is merciful. Help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.